you know, life is not going to come to a standstill if I don't agree with you. Or, like real you know, love. Like, look, I got to know the person. <laughs> gay marriage, gay rights, homosexuality. My opinion is, um, like, empathy. I guess I have an opinion. Empathy. They don't call you pickles like, anymore? Someone asked, what, what yeah. is it like to lose your dad? Well, it's kind of like the railing on the porch. Like, if she, if she hadn't had an aide in the classroom, she wouldn't have been able to change my life forever. Damn. There's good in all kids. Mm-hmm. There's good in all Getting kids. to know somebody, thinking the thoughts of the other might yes. be a hugely healing thing. I got death penalty, I got exactly universal health care, taxes, Confederate right monuments, oh, oh my God. political <laughs> Thank you on behalf of all humanity. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you on behalf of all humanity. <laughs> Welcome to Like You, where I talk to people like you about their lives, what they believe, and why they believe it. My name is John Zelson. The website is likeyoupodcast.org. This is episode six. It's a second part of my discussion with Emma. Please do listen to the first part first. When we left off in part one, we were getting ready to talk about John Covington and the Education Achievement Authority, the EAA. To refresh your memory, the EAA was created by the governor of Michigan to do a state takeover and turnaround of failing public schools. John Covington was the first chancellor. As I mentioned in part one, Emma turned my interview process upside down. The way her story unfolded, the way she would answer a bigger, better question than I could ask, it reminded me of another part of this experiment in understanding each other, that sense of exploration and discovery. It's always there when you meet someone new or go to a new place. And it's an important part of this podcast. When someone has the courage to share a bit of their journey, and when you and I are open to follow along, all kinds of discoveries are possible. Please enjoy part two of Emma. It's almost like I'm saying, well, you look at that reality, like, what are you seeing? Because mm-hmm. I, I'm yeah, really curious. Yeah. Like, I think it's something different. Um, so um, here's here's sort of a question about that. Mm-hmm. John Covington, do you ever wonder what his motivations are for this? He might be a bad example, but... No, no, he's a great him. example. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think is going on in his head? This is like a question that I'm actually really curious about because I do think about it a lot. Sometimes I think we get a chance to see people's internal like narrative, like the thing that they tell themselves that they're doing. Um, because sometimes I think people don't realize that it, it only exists internally. And so they'll, they'll say it out loud or they'll kind of like expose some part of it to the sunlight and people are like, what? Ah, that's not what's happening. Um, but I do think that, I do think that everybody has that like I it's hard for me to imagine that someone is walking around being like I'm doing something evil and I'm harming a lot of people and you know Mm -hmm. I mean I'm sure there are people who who think that way but um it's scary to me how successful um those narratives can be um and as an example when I was in college um I had a friend who uh I didn't know super well, but we ended up going on a trip together. And on the course of this trip, I discovered that she was, like, super wealthy. Um, 
and we were having an argument about public education. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> and it was really important to me at this point in my life that I like, I don't know, I think a lot of people go through this where they think the answer is like somewhere in the middle, you know? It's like you go to college <laughs> and you're like, oh, there's this side and there's this side and then there's this nice, tidy little answer and it's somewhere in the middle, um, which of course <laughs> like the existence of Nazis and our current political paradigm is thrown that right out the window. But um, mm-hmm. but also it's like not a very realistic way to look at the world because the answer isn't always somewhere in the middle, conveniently enough. Um, and mm-hmm. so it was really important to me that in our conversation we get to this place where we agree and I was really struggling because it wasn't happening. Um, she just kind of kept maintaining her points, and I, I kept being like, yeah, but, you know, I was, like, fresh from my experiences in, in Brooklyn and um, with City Year, and I, I was trying to explain, essentially, that my students were human beings who deserve the same thing she deserves. And she finally got frustrated with me, and she, she just said, look, I understand that in order for me to be rich, those people have to be poor, and I'm okay with that. And I, like, I want to be rich. Like, I love, I love my life, and I love what I get to do, and I don't want to live in another way. I would be scared to be poor or to have less money. Like, I, I, she, she basically was, I was trying to, like, humanize her and be like, oh, well, you just, like, you know, you want them to be okay, but you want to be okay, too. And she was like, no, like, I don't want to just be okay. Like, I want to be rich. And we were, like, sitting on this hill in California, and I was just floored. I was like, oh, and she even said to me, she was, I understand that in order for me to be rich, you have to be poor, and I'm okay with that, and I was like, whoa, like, I've never been so, like, overtly dehumanized right to my face, you're looking at me, and you're seeing me, and we're having this conversation, we just traveled together to another state, and you're, you're telling me that you are okay with the way things are, because you benefit and somewhere in your story or your upbringing or your lived experience you've been told that this is an all right way to be and in fact that like some people are more human than other people you know and like we see examples of this kind of thinking all over the place where it's like like if someone commits a crime then they don't they don't really deserve the same treatment as somebody else you know or like if someone makes a mistake or like very unforgiving or you know like some people are more human than other people um and it's like a really pervasive uh, perspective, and I think it's wrong, <laughs> but I also think that it's um, it enables these narratives. So when I think about, like, John Covington, you know, one, I think that people try to remain ignorant about the harm that they're doing, um, and two, like, I think that um, it has something to do with the way you see yourself as the protagonist of your story. So... Um, like, if everyone is the protagonist of their own story, then that can kind of, like, enable you to um, forgive yourself of, like, all manner of horrible sins. But if you see yourself in a story that has many protagonists, then you take a really different perspective. And I think we're encouraged to see ourselves as, as the protagonist of our own story, as, like, the, you know, mm-hmm. the hero. We're all the hero, um, not just, like, the protagonist, but we're all the hero. And so, like, it's interesting to talk to people who are in these positions of authority who I think are enacting extremely destructive policies that have immediate and devastating results and to hear the way that they talk about themselves, not even as, like, benign forces, but they're always the hero, right? They're always doing something amazing. They're, like, making the hard decisions. I've had so many interactions with every emergency manager that's, that's 
you know, Detroit public schools has had where, uh, you know, like there's the guy that came and shut my school down. I worked at this like beautiful, amazing neighborhood school called Mason on the east side um, of Detroit. And, you know, it was built at a time when like people thought that education was important. And so it's got these big Mm -hmm. high windows and these beautiful lawns and this big playground and all this wonderful stuff. And, you know, almost all the kids walked to school. We had one bus and the neighborhood would look out for the kids and, you know, everybody, it was just like a real community and it was really beautiful. And after working in this like horrible for-profit charter school that I worked at my first year of teaching, it was such an amazing affirmation that what I thought about education was really possible and was in fact happening places. And, you know, the emergency manager came to close the school. It was the last, um, you know, neighborhood school in this area. They'd closed like five schools in six years or something. This was the last holdout. And he came to close the school and he gave us a bunch of, you know, BS reasons why he was closing the school. And mm-hmm. um, people went up to the mic to be like, hey, please don't close your school. You know, this is like a really important thing for our, for our kids. And, and I went up to the mic and he was like very civil the whole time. But when I went up to the mic, I talked to him about what happens, um, like what messages kids get from their school when you walk in the door if you walk into a building that's beautiful and well-maintained and there's adults there who care about you, like you're getting messages about your worth and your value. And when you walk by an abandoned school that's shuttered and you're getting messages then about your worth and value and, and, and those messages are really bad. Um, and we don't want kids to have those messages. And he like was super mad and kind of flew off the handle. And, um, you know, the, the kids uh, we knew were going to be bused to this other school called Farwell, which was already so overcrowded at that point that um, that they were being investigated by the fire marshal because they had more kids than they could fit in the classrooms. And so they were sitting in the hallways, which is against fire code. Um, and so, um, you know, that was before they sent my students over there from my school. But that was because they had closed all these neighborhood schools, and the building was terrible. It was all one floor, and there were those little slit windows like they had in medieval castles. Just like a <laughs> terrible, falling down, awful building um, that sent this message to every kid that walked in there that they didn't matter. And I brought that up to the emergency manager, and he was like, you know what? I have to make hard decisions and I don't know what planet you're from and blah, blah, blah. And he got like really aggressive and really mean. I can send you the video actually. Um, but <laughs> he, um, he had this narrative in his head that he was making the hard choices. He was doing what no one else would do. And he said that he was like, who's going to, I have to close some schools. Who's going to close the schools? Are you going to do it? You know? And it's like, no, I'm definitely not. Um, and also like, why, <laughs> why do you have to close the schools? You don't have to close the schools. And I think what it is is that people accept certain aspects about their reality and they don't think beyond those parameters. And a lot of times, consciously or unconsciously, I think we select our parameters based on what benefits us, right? So, like, um, you know, uh, if you are the emergency manager and you're the hero of your story and you've decided that you're not going to think beyond um, these certain parameters because if you do, then your options change, right? So if you have to close schools and there's nothing you can do, you just have to do it, then you're going to approach that really differently than if you're thinking to yourself, well, do I have to close these schools and why? And, like, you know, uh, who's benefiting from this? Why is this the the paradigm that we find ourselves in? Um, yes, Um you know, uh, there's a lot of talk these days about zero sum, zero sum, you know, like if there's X amount of money, mm. we're going to divide it up. And mm-hmm. The more you get, the less I get. And um, 
Yeah. Everyone knows that's sort of how it works sometimes, but big picture, you know, if the economy gets better, then everyone makes more money. That, mm-hmm. that sort of exists too. So some people seem to be really really committed to the zero-sum idea like your friend. Mm-hmm. And like I hear that, and like your guy making tough decisions. There's X dollars in the budget. Right. Hard decisions. How do you talk to someone like that to um, get them to understand some of the consequences mm-hmm. of their decision-making? Gosh, well, if I was more successful at that, then my school wouldn't have been close. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I think that's the question. Um, and I think that part of it is um, finding some means of, like, accountability. So, for instance, um, gosh, like, thinking about the fact that um, we don't have any mechanisms to really check people in power. Like, we don't have, um, for example, with a budget when people are like, there's X amount of money and, you know, we have to spend it here and there. Like, there there isn't like um like when people lie about that for instance <laughs> there isn't a way to check them so for instance like Detroit Public Schools is a great example like when the state took over Detroit Public Schools there was actually a budget surplus um and what happened in Detroit Public Schools is what's happened in every single place where there's been a state takeover of the school system going all the way back to New Jersey um where they had the first state takeover I think in like 92 or something like that um, where you have a district that has a budget surplus, but according to some metric is failing, um, and then the state takes over, and then, you know, 10 years down the line, they're still failing according to the same metrics, um, but now this district is, like, hopelessly in debt, and the debt is then used to either maintain control or to privatize the district or any of these other things. And so it's, like, um, somehow it ends up being, like, this self-fulfilling prophecy that the schools don't work and can't function and there isn't a way to balance the budget. Um, but I guess I'm babbling right now because I don't know. I don't know how to reach those people and how to change the parameters through which they're looking at things. I think examples are really helpful. I'm really curious to find out about the Covington, like his view of self. He's he may be a bad example because he's. But, but, but you're he's saying not that people. A bad example, like he, like John Covington is like a black man in America who is successful by a lot of people's metrics and who, according to his own self-talk, is participating in, you know, uh, like fighting this battle to win education or something. And, of course, he's failing miserably and he's harming, like, thousands and thousands of children. I mean, an entire school system lost accreditation. And, honestly, like, an entire generation of Detroit public school students were robbed of their right to access a basic education to be humanized in their schools, all because of policies that he helped to enact. And none of that is, none of that is okay. And I also imagine that, like, it's tough because my friend Molly is always trying to make me, um, I feel like I haven't demonstrated this for you yet, but I am, like, a very angry person a lot of the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you have it. It's, like, very, very pleasant nice to talk to you yeah. when you ask nice questions. <laughs> but, like, I do. I get super <laughs> mad about people who I feel like know better and still choose to harm other people for their own benefit. Um, or even just to, like, you know, um, keep keep things the way that they are uh, to kind of like maintain the status quo. And so um, my friend Molly is trying to get me to be like, well, but nobody ever really, um, you know, wants to like hurt anyone else. And like, she takes like a really hard line in the other direction. And I, I do like kind of reject that. And then I think that we have clear examples of, of people who, um, 
know know what they're doing um, and uh, and don't behave with integrity. Um, uh, unfortunately, we have like a lot of examples of those people, and we also have a lot of examples of the opposite, right? So people who had every excuse to um, to kind of like abandon their own humanity and like treat people poorly and don't. So like um, we have those extremes. Um, but I, I do have a hard time with like blanket statements where it's just like, well, everybody's just trying to do the best they can. Cause I just have so much experience with people who have not, for whom I just can't find that to be true. And it's really useful to, to figure out like what stories people are telling themselves. Um, the Flint water crisis, are you familiar with? Yeah. 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 So Darnell Early was the emergency manager of Flint who, um, who helped to privatize their public water system. They used to get water from Detroit. And um, he was one of the people who, like, made the decision to switch to the Flint River and, um, and all the things that transpired then transpired. And his reward for privatizing the water in Flint was that he was given Detroit public schools as the emergency manager. So he moved from Flint to Detroit and um, became our emergency manager. So he went from the city of Flint to the, the school district. Um, but the same system where there's like no democratic mechanism in place. Um, you have unilateral power. You're appointed by the governor um, and you can kind of do whatever you want. And so he decided to do this thing that's very upsetting that people in power sometimes do where they like sort of pay lip service to a better system or like a more democratic system. And they like put structures in place, but they're totally artificial. They, they aren't actually real. And so he created this thing called the transformation team um, at Detroit public schools where there was it was like 90 people. I think I was the only teacher. <laughs> Everyone else was like central office staff. You were on it. Yeah, I was on it. I have no idea how I got on it, but um, I and I wasn't on it for long. But I um, mm-hmm. I went to like this session um, where he was. He took us to the Ross Business School. Now, as a teacher, to suddenly be experiencing like something related to DPS, where they're like paying for like hotel rooms, and we're like going to the business school. Like, the University of Michigan, and everyone seems very fancy. It was very disorienting. But um, mm-hmm. he was telling, he was trying to tell a story, like an inspirational tale, about a time when he achieved something that no one thought was possible. Um, and the first example was this, like, <laughs> city in Utah or something where there was, like, a bunch of nuclear waste, and, like, no one knew what to do, and somehow they fixed it, which I was very suspicious of that story. But um, <laughs> mm-hmm. especially because of what I know about the way that we treat nuclear waste in Utah. But um, right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so he was telling the story, and he started talking about Flint and how no one thought that he would ever be able to privatize the public water system or, like, get around all the safeguards that were in place. But he did it, and <laughs> and he was going to do the same thing with Detroit Public Schools. And I wish I had had before, like, I wish I had known what he was going to say that I so that I could, like, videotape him or something with my camera because I was just – at that time, it hadn't yet come out um, that, you know, people were being poisoned by their water in Flint. But there were, like, whispers, right? And I had friends who were activists in Flint who were talking about what was going on and that there was something wrong with the water. And I remember thinking to myself, I feel like I've been hearing that that didn't go well. Like, I feel like, you know, like, that wasn't um, that wasn't actually something you should brag about. That's my impression. And the fact that you would allude to it and then say that you're going to do the exact same thing to Detroit Public Schools is, like, sort of giving me, like, a, a bad feeling in the pit of my stomach. And then, of course, like, several months later, you know, everything came out about the fact that so many people had been um, exposed to lead and um, that it was a direct result of his decision-making. And um, 
treatment. So, of course, there are a lot of parallels between those. But it was interesting to hear him talk about himself, you know, and talk about uh-huh. how he did this, like, very difficult thing. <laughs> and, you know, in that story, what was important wasn't really the thing. It was that he did it, you know. And um, I think there is a lot of that, again, where it's like people have parameters around what they're willing to think about. Um, like, I have a friend, I'm not sure if he's serious or not, I really hope not, but he has recently gotten into, like, flat earth theory, and it's hilarious. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I have to assume he's joking. There's always a possibility that he's not. Um, but what is fascinating <laughs> about talking to someone who is dabbling in flat earthism, I don't know if that's what you call it, but um, is that there yeah. are things that they simply won't discuss. So it's, it's really easy um, to poke holes in this theory. Um, but any of those things that you bring up, they'll kind of be like, oh, well, that's not important. We don't need to talk about that. That distracts from the main point, right? So like a very easy way to have a completely irrational um, belief system, very easy to disprove that most people don't agree with, is simply to refuse to engage with anything that threatens it. Um, and so it's sort of kind of frustrating to have conversations with him because um, on the one hand, it's, it's actually like it's so out there that it's kind of refreshing because you have to really like think about like what do I know about like physics and, you know, <laughs> right, right, like, yes, exactly. like how like it's it's like when you talk to anybody who has like diametrically opposing views to your own where it's like it's actually kind of helpful because it allows you the opportunity to examine your own beliefs um, and see if they really do hold water and then um, articulate them in a way to yourself even, that maybe you haven't done before. So maybe you, like, intuitively believe Mm -hmm. something, but you haven't ever had to explain why. And that's, like, a useful experience to be able to do that. And so, um, you know, on the one hand, it's like that, where you have that experience, and it's kind of fun. And then on the other hand, it's extremely frustrating because apparently if you are a flat earther, you're allowed to just say, oh, I don't want to talk about that. Or like, oh, no, that that's not a useful discussion. Let's come back to this part. You know, and it's like, <laughs> well, wait a second, you know, if we're picking and choosing. Uh, and I think that goes back to, like, people in power have, they they have the power to sort of say, like, what are the things that we can discuss and what are the things that we can't discuss? Because if we discuss them, then it kind of, like, uh, throws everything into question, right? And so, like, people have limits to what they're willing to engage on. And unfortunately, people who have a lot of power are able to, like, take those limits and enforce them, kind of. You could be a person who has, like, a very particular dogmatic, principled way of living, but you might be able to accept that other people might have different ways of living and that, like, that might be right for you but isn't right for other people. Um, And some people are not able to do that, and they seem to think that the way that they live, in the same way that, like, earlier I was talking about how sometimes I have this, like, uh, jarring experience where um, I've had my own experience and I just assume that everyone experienced something the same way as me mm-hmm. and then when I find out that they haven't I'm like oh my gosh <laughs> totally. there are other ways of looking at this um, but I think some people are not able to accept that so the way that they experience the world um, is then the only way to experience things and everything else is sort of like abhorrent or um, different or wrong in some way and um, 
when you couple that with power or with societal narratives that reinforce that, like we could look at like toxic masculinity or the way that we norm whiteness or the way that we constantly reiterate that capitalism is okay and like a normal way to relate to other people and it's like really destructive. Um, I think that's like a really potent, <laughs> it's a really potent combination to be like uh, affirmed when you have like a narrow and destructive view, right? Uh-huh. I just, uh, again, it's always amusing. Like, in one sentence, you'll cut, like, all this ground, you know? <laughs> um, That's because they're long sentences. <laughs> my sentence is shorter. Oh, my God. Do you think that uh, people who are... The, the negative thing where you yeah. you can only see your point of view, let's say. Yes. And, um... Oh, there was a way you had of saying that that I've lost track of, but, but I think you know what I'm saying. I think it would be clear if someone yeah, heard yeah. this. But, um, do you think they, they tend to fall into, like, the Republican Party? Because I'm going to assume that you're not a big Trump fan. <laughs> no, not a big Trump fan. Um, maybe, but what's interesting to me, and I don't know if this is just because, like, my primary focus is on education, mm-hmm. um, but there actually isn't a meaningful difference between, like, Republican and Democratic approaches to education. Like, somewhere along the way, um, I want to say in, like, the late 80s or early 90s, someone or a group of people, like, looked at public education and instead of seeing something that is like an inalienable right and a necessary component of a functioning democracy, they saw a $600 billion industry just sort of waiting to be capitalized on and they've been capitalizing on it ever since. And, you know, um, Democrats have not had meaningfully different policies than Republicans um, when it comes to education. And it's really interesting to see that um, kind of play out because it has really shifted my thinking in terms of like types of people. Uh, The example I always think about is um, I met uh, Bill Ayers at a uh, book signing once, um, and he was part of the Weather Underground, um, and now I think he's a college professor possibly, but he um, was like an activist back in the day. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was talking about how there was a minor kerfuffle um, when it was discovered that President Obama, former President Obama's kids were going to the same school as Bill Ayers' kids. And, um, you know, he talked about that in a different context. But what I discovered from this conversation is that um, Barack Obama, Rahm Emanuel, and um, the former Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, all of their kids went to the same school. These are all Democrats, right? They went to the Chicago Lab School. Mm. This is a school that has a unionized teaching force where teachers are only evaluated the first, third, and I think fifth year of teaching and then never again, where they have no focus on standardized testing, where their their students have access to music and art and dance and gym and recess and, you know, all of the things that you would want your kids to have access to. Um, and, you know, their disciplines are very different. All of this stuff is completely different from the policies that, President Obama and Rahm Emanuel and Arne Duncan were pushing on other people's children. Um, and that was, like, really shocking uh, for me to think about, although maybe it shouldn't have been. Maybe I was just, like, really naive. But the way that um, without any uh, demarcation around, like, lines of, uh, like, party lines or anything like that, 
people in power seem to systematically believe that their children deserve something better than other people's children, mm-hmm. um, which is really horrifying and upsetting. Like, and this is sort of what I was trying to touch on in the interview, too, is that, like, we know what kids need. And you don't have to look any further than where people put their own children in school to see how deeply they understand what kids need. The challenge is that some people believe that their kids are more human than other people's kids and that they deserve more than, than other people's kids do. But I do think that, like, that there was a time when I felt pretty strongly that what you posited was maybe true, that like um, maybe Republicans or conservatives uh, conservatives skewed more heavily in that direction. But I think that actually like the impression that I get, even from my friends who would maybe identify more as liberals than like um, leftists or radicals, there's like a weird similarity there where they're, they're still kind of in the place where they think the answer is somewhere in the middle, you know? Mm-hmm. And as people move further and further to the right, the middle moves further and further to the right. So uh, I guess in answer to your question, like I think that, um, that, <sighs> that maybe there's like, I'm sorry, I'm trying to figure out what I think, but like maybe That's there so is like some sort of like correlation there. But I think that like, that even asking, like, that question sort of, uh, like, presupposes that there are, mm-hmm. there are, like, more differences that exist than there actually maybe are. Like, yeah. I don't think that Republicans and Democrats are actually so very different, unfortunately. And that is admittedly because of my experience in education, where education policies haven't been different. Both parties have been making money hand over fist, privatizing public education. Um, and they talk about it very differently. Um, the narrative is really, really different, but what they're actually doing with their policies is is identical. It makes me really happy, Aaron, because um, here's what I, here's what I was really doing. I'm worried about time, right? So I was trying oh, to take yeah. this huge shortcut to get something, but I uh-huh. hate it when I do that because usually I'm very patient because what I really want is to not influence. Uh, but um, but I was trying to go too fast. Um, but I love it that like you didn't bite. You made sure you told me the way it really is, which I. Cracks me up. <laughs> um, the um, so your whole political is it fair to say that your political yeah. f- kind of framing of the world and your day to day life it really is through education. You're looking is is that is that a true statement? Um. Well, what do you mean? Sorry. Yeah. Like no, um. No, no. Yeah. When, when you, a lot of people when they, when they think um, Republican Democrat, they're thinking you know Trump or not Trump. They're thinking mm-hmm. you line up the issues, whether it's like abortion yeah, yeah. or like they're they're lining up those issues that we all know, and people are standing on their sides. Mm-hmm. Um, do you fit in that world, or you're are you just like saying, look, just thinking about education? No, I think like education is like a lens through which I can see some of these like struggles play out, and mm-hmm. um, it's like a it's a landscape in which uh, it becomes really obvious that a lot of the like conversations that are happening are not actually like there isn't actually conflict. Everyone has agreed that they could make money off of <laughs> privatizing public education and they're doing it. And so this, is like, what the, I love. The, this makes me laugh when you just say that playing out is so fun. But yeah. Hope- well, I mean, like, it seems, I mean, I don't know. I could be wrong, but that's what it looks like to me. Uh-huh. And so like, mm-hmm. um, it's interesting to watch people sort of like, uh, have this like meaningless, endless chatter that, 
where they're like pretending to be at odds with one another when you know their their actions tell a very different story. Um, but I think education is just the way that I look at that. I think when I think about like my political orientation, it has to go like it has to do with a willingness to um, maybe like undo things to a degree that I think. Um, that I don't really feel like I, I do feel like there are like a cadre of people with whom like I, I share this belief that that we we have to go like to a certain point in order to like fix what is wrong. Um, but the impression that I I think the way that I sort of separate things is like there are people who identify as Republican or conservative and there are people who identify as like Democrat and liberal. And I think that they are both unwilling to um, threaten their own like positions their own comfort. So they're only willing to go so far to change things. And so what I mean by that is that like, like we were talking about like how people are their own kind of like the protagonist of their own story. Right. So like how, um, you know, we're all the hero kind of, um, unless, <laughs> unless you don't have that perspective. Um, but I remember like as a kid, I was like really fascinated by Martin Luther King. And I went to like a, you know, hippy dippy, like a uh, liberal elementary school where we talked all about Dr. King. And, um, and I thought he was so fabulous. And I would practice his speeches in the shower. And I like really identified <laughs> with him, you know, and I remember in, in high, which of course, it was like so silly. But um, I remember like in high school, one of our high school teachers was trying to get us think to, to like think more critically and, and was talking about Malcolm X and was like, well, like, you know, would you guys ever consider like violence or like nonviolence the only way? And my friend Nicole, who was like so smart, she was like, oh, well, it's like totally arbitrary because like we have history to show us that like nonviolence was the way to do it. And like at the time I was like, yeah, Nicole, what she said. But now, of course, I think about it and I'm like, oh, this is what happens when you teach an incomplete history. You know, we have so little knowledge of the present. We have so little correct analysis of what's currently happening. And we have even less, you know, knowledge and understanding sort of broadly as a society of what has happened in the past. And that it kind of informs um, where we're going, this lack of knowledge and understanding. And there's like a lot of really great um, books and information about how like there were actually like people who took up arms and protected people in SNCC and other like you know, nonviolent organizations in the South. And, and um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't so simple. It wasn't so sanitized. It wasn't so easy to just say, okay, it was a question of violence or nonviolence. But that narrative helps support kind of, you know, not changing things. So I think, like, there was a period of time where I imagined myself sort of like, a, uh, like someone who would be like Martin Luther King and who would, like, lead the way and, like, lead the struggle and um, I think a really important turning point as a, an activist and like an organizer and a teacher even was the realization that whatever struggles that we have to lead us out of this very twisted uh, sort of moment in history that we're in where we have been conditioned to accept uh, like horrible human rights abuses and the exploitation and imprisonment of millions of people and where, you know, we've been conditioned to believe that, like, there isn't another way to organize things. And, like, of course, people are just hungry because, you know, there isn't enough food and, and war is inevitable and not the product of, you know, someone trying to get rich. It's, like, such an awful moment. And the people who are going to lead us out of this moment are not going to be white people. They're not going to be rich people. They're probably not going to be men. And, that it's really important to recognize that the only way you can envision like change 
um, is with you at the forefront as the leader, then you are almost certainly part of the problem. And I think that this is like a really important thing, especially for like well-meaning liberals or like white people to recognize is that like um, that there's there's something fundamental that has to change about our position. It's not just that we're going to change, um, you know, like this or that policy or like move money around a little bit. It's that we need to take things apart at their foundation, right? So that's like um, Angela Davis talks about the word radical meaning to like grasp things at the root. Um, and I think that that's something that I really identify with. It's not about like finding ways to have like green capitalism or like to uh, somehow like offset, um, you know, the the damage that we're doing in, in these kind of like meaningless ways. It's about like actually looking at our systems and saying, well, these systems don't serve us and, and being willing to have a radical imagination around what systems might work better. Um, and that's going to involve a lot of people having to do what my friend on the Hill in California wasn't willing to do, which is to like... Um, imagine like giving up their position, their power, um, and embracing the idea that that's not actually a sacrifice, that if you really do believe in like the idea of Ubuntu or something similar to it, where our humanity is connected to each other, and I'm a person because of you, and you're a person because of me, then you're not really giving anything up, you're, um, you know, getting the opportunity to experience your humanity fully, but of course that's like, when you're talking in material terms, <laughs> um, I think that's going to be harder to convince people of. Um, but even for myself, I find this with, um, you know, I've, I've never had, uh, right now, I'm like working on saving money, which is something I've, I've never been able to do before. Um, and um, so I have like a savings account. And um, for the first time in my life, I have like $5,000 in my savings account. And this is an incredible sum of money to me. And honestly, like if we look at America uh, in a very clear-eyed way right now, this is an incredible amount of money to most people. I, I forget what the percentage is, but, um, you know, something like 70% of people would be bankrupted by like a like a $500 medical bill or something like that. Like, uh, you should check that. It was in the New York Times, but it's something similar to that, like, most people are in this situation, and that's the United States, not much less the rest of the world. Like, our wealth disparity is so, like, it's so stratified the way that we operate, but we're, the picture that's given to us is very different, right? What we're being told about our lives isn't true, you know, and what you're striving for maybe isn't actually accessible. Um, and, you know, in order to move out of poverty, you have to have, like, 20 years of nothing going wrong. But what I find is interesting is, even for me, like, to be in a place where for the first time in my life, like, I have savings, like, I've forgotten a little bit about what it felt like when, like, you know, I didn't have money for toothpaste and I'm, like, picking up change and stuff. The the things that you have to do, like, that take up so much time and energy when you're poor, um, when they're not there, it's like it's like privilege kind of. It's like you, for, you forget about them. You forget, but it's not like your immediate need, you know, you forget and your perspective changes. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, I'm becoming part of the problem. <laughs> I, I'm not, <laughs> like, I'm not, um, and, you know, I, I'm obviously trying not to, but, like, it changes because of the way that our systems are set up. Having money changes your perspective and your orientation towards other people, I think. Um, and it's been interesting to sort of watch that even happen to myself. Like, I'm, you know, 
the first person I think out of my siblings to have like a salary, you know, and it's not great, but you know, it's something. And like, I do have benefits, even if they have not led me to a lifetime of therapy, but um, <laughs> like, I, yeah, I think that, I think that, and I'm taking a long time to say this, but I think that the way that my political orientation um, is structured is like, I think that what we need to do is dismantle capitalism and white supremacy <laughs> and patriarchy. I think we need to be like very honest about our history. Like one of the most important things that I do as a teacher is that I, I try very hard not to teach children lies. I mean, uh-huh. as an example, and it's difficult because my curriculum is full of lies. And, and uh-huh. sometimes there are lies that I don't even realize that I'm repeating as lies, but they are. For instance, we're learning about the 13 colonies and the way that the textbook lays it out is like, you know, these poor English uh, Protestants are, are being persecuted. And so they bravely and courageously go to a new land and they, it's really hard and they're starving and dying. And then they like, make it work and hooray, America. But, you know, the way that I, like, laid this out to my students was I, I said, you know, imagine they had, like, a writing prompt. We do a lot of writing prompts because it's fun to think through writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was like, um, okay, so imagine you're, like, going about your day and you're living in your community. Everything's normal. And then these people show up in your backyard. Um, and they don't speak any language that you recognize. And um, maybe they're, like, different from you in terms of being sort of, like, smelly or dirty or, which the Europeans were, by the way, um, or, you know, whatever. But they're there, and they're just living there, and they seem very comfortable, and they seem to just sort of expect to be there. Like, what do you do? And so the kids write about it. And some of the kids are like, I kick them out of my backyard. And some of the kids are like, I make friends with them, and I learn about their culture. And some of the kids are like, I, you know, I invite them in for a bath. And you know, we go through that and then the story progresses and it's like, okay, well, you know, they're living in your backyard and then you come home one day and they're, they're going through your refrigerator and they're eating your food. And like, what do you do then? And the kids go on and they write about it. And then it's like, well, you come home and you're really tired. You know, you went to school, you went to soccer practice, you're exhausted. You want to take a nap and you open your door and they're sleeping in your bed. And you know, it goes on. And then like your grandmother and your little sister get sick from some disease that they bring over. And all of that is the kind of frame, like what the experience was like for, people who were part of indigenous nations that might have been um, in the places where colonizers arrived and how like different that framing is where it's like, it doesn't take anything away. We still talk about the English Protestants and how they were persecuted for their religious beliefs and how it was very (laughs) difficult to like cross the ocean and how many people died and how they like, they really did struggle, but also have, they had this belief that, you know, wherever they landed that belonged to them. Um, and that they had a right to it and that they didn't have to consider the needs of the people who were already there and, you know, kind of like looking at the relationship really differently. So I feel like, you know, that's just one lesson from one day, but it's really important, like, to sort of challenge the the narrative. Our textbook is only written from the perspective of, like, white and European people. Like, there isn't any other, there's like a a paragraph about, like, slavery and the transatlantic slave trade, and, like, you know, there's, like, uh, some, like, really reductive information about Native Americans. Well, I don't know. I feel like the fact that nowhere in the Constitution is, uh, education is enshrined as a right is evidence that possibly some, like, white slaveholding near teens didn't create a perfect mm-hmm. document, you know, and that that should be okay to say and that we should be willing to be like, okay, like this is what we're working with, but just because things are this way right now doesn't mean that they can't be better or different, you know, like we have to be able to have like an imagination about it. <laughs> there are so many. Sorry. So I guess, 
Yes. <laughs> no, it's okay. So the last thing is that, like, I think that there are a lot of people who are willing to consider change so long as it doesn't touch mm-hmm. their position in, like, the scheme of things. And I think that we will never get anywhere like that. And there are also people who aren't willing to consider change at all. And we're never going to get anywhere like that either. So I feel like that's kind of how I view um, conservatives and liberals is that like one of them either doesn't want to change things or wants to regress to a past that probably never actually existed in the way that they say that it does. Um, and the other group wants to change things, but in kind of like a, a wishy-washy way that it won't actually change anything. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Um, <laughs> have you read a Pedagogy of the Oppressed? I have. Paulo Freire or Paulo Freire? Tell me if this is right. You're saying that there's a narrative in play and it assumes a bunch of junk, but really that kind of limits us. We need to throw away that whole framework. Mm. My 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 naive interpretation of the pedagogy of the oppressed was like, you you have to think a whole different way. Instead of like oppressed and oppressor, where the oppressor just becomes the oppressed and the oppressed becomes the oppressor, Mm -hmm. because they're thinking in in a way that will always yield that result. When you speak of your beliefs, are you thinking in the back of your mind, oh, this reminds me of Pedagogy of the Oppressed? Or am I, am I projecting that onto Totally. Okay. Only if I'm doing everything right. <laughs> yeah. No, definitely. Like, I, I think that that is uh, definitely one of those, like, sort of formative, um, like, books and philosophies about, like, how the world is. And I think that, like, something that's really important that kind of maybe uh, is derived from that is, like, the idea that, like, we're told sort of that like uh, like the narrative that we're living in, like reality is like this monolith, right? It just like mm-hmm. exists in this way. But we have all of these examples that contradict that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we have historical examples and then we have like, you know, modern day examples. And we're like, told that like there are all these things that are just the way that they are and there's nothing we can do about it when it's it's just not the case. Like we have the ability to to solve pretty much every problem that exists or we already have somewhere. Um, but that, like, you know, doesn't jive with, like, the dominant narrative about what's wrong and why and okay. why it's not fixable. So one thing I like about doing this podcast, I talk to people who come from a very different place. Mm-hmm. I often see politics as a small p. Like, everyone, not only is our people maybe have some kind of opinion on a broad political issue then they have all that like the way they perceive the world or their life experience they're framing everything so differently um i'm trying to figure out how some of the other people i've interviewed would process what you're saying like dan i'm trying to figure out how i can ask you a question (laughs) 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 to kind of bridge this crazy gap how can i make someone who hasn't read any of those books and who comes from a totally different place like do, I wonder if they would like you. I, I feel that there's no one on the planet who wouldn't like you. <laughs> so nice of you to say. <laughs> Believe me, there are. Because right, right. you're, you're, you're oh confronting people uh, in a different environment. You're, you're confronting people on, on something that could affect their dollars, I guess. And there, there's so many questions yeah. about that. But um, what could I say to some of these people? How could I describe you and your beliefs in a way that they would actually understand it? Gosh. I think it's about asking questions um, because I find, so I have had all these experiences recently where, um, you know, uh, there's a perception of like me and I have perceived the other person and we have just like jumped off, you know, like um, 
uh, I had a, like a, a pin on my shirt. So when I, this is bad. <laughs> when I fly, um, I've been traveling a lot lately. And, and when I fly somewhere, I dress for the airport. Normally, I just wear regular clothes. But when I go to the airport, I wear like a hat that says make racist afraid again. in like the <laughs> make America great again font. It's like a red hat with white lettering. I like have a big pin that says abortion is normal like I am pushing I have a shirt that says like you're talking about like the U.S. prison industrial complex like you know I am like super in your face Uh because I think it's really important for people who are being like marginalized and oppressed and told that they're wrong and bad that they see that there are like people who don't think that's okay and I also think it's very important for people who are being affirmed right now um, for beliefs that I think are really toxic and and bigoted uh, to be confronted. But the problem is that that doesn't really invite conversation, mm-hmm. right? And so it's very aggressive. And so the response is very aggressive. And sometimes it's like people being very enthusiastic about liking my hat. Um, and sometimes it's people who are very dismayed by my button. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, let's see, two days ago, I flew into D.C., and um, this is, like, a place that's especially charged. So it's interesting how different airports, uh, the reception is very different. But mm-hmm. um, but I got off the plane, and I was walking towards where you catch a cab. And um, there was a woman walking in front of me, and she was walking kind of slow. And so I just kind of scooted ahead of her, and some other people did too. Um, and I got in line, and there was a man in front of me. And I think he was with her. Maybe he was her husband or something like that. And so um, she was sort of walking up the line behind me. And the person directly behind me was an older woman, and she saw my hat. And she thought it was hilarious, and she laughed for a long time. And that got this woman's attention, who, had, who I had passed. And so she was walking past me. She sort of like took stock of all the things I was wearing Mm -hmm. and fixated on my pin. And she um, like without saying anything else, just sort of immediately was like, well, do you have children? Um, And I was like, who are you? Like, I don't even know you. Um, So I'm not sure why you're asking me that question or why it's your business. Uh, But no, I, I don't have any kids. Do you have kids? And she was like, yes, I have kids. And like, the only reason you think abortion is normal is because you don't have kids. And uh, she like immediately started yelling. So like immediately like volume is raised. Like she's not trying to hear anything I have to say. And I became very snarky, which I know is not the way to go. But I told her that you know if you enjoy forced pregnancy so much, like you should really watch A Handmaid's Tale because it's like all about that. I think you really enjoy this like <laughs> this TV oh, show. Um, and which of course, like I stole that from Michelle Wolf, who said something sort of similar about Mike Pence at the White Horse Blunt mm-hmm. dinner, and I was like, oh, great point. Anyway, um, and then I ended up taking her cab and saying, God bless you, as she called me a baby killer, and I drove away. Mm-hmm. But um, it was just, like, such a, I think, like, a classic example of, like, a situation where, like, no connection was made. There was no humanity, like, no, like, I betrayed my own ideals. I'm sure on some level she betrayed hers. I don't know what her ideals are, but I imagine, like, you know, she might have betrayed them because she was, like, screaming at a stranger. Um, But maybe not. But I don't know. When I think well of whoever this person is, I imagine that she also maybe feels that way and probably also feels dissatisfied by our interaction um, because it's clear like neither one of us moved an inch and also were, did not take the opportunity to be our, our best selves by any stretch of the imagination um, and also probably felt like slightly satisfied. Like I imagine she like walked away from that conversation feeling like she had won and I walked away thinking that I had something hilarious. 
um, and like annoyed someone. Um, and that is like not, it's not good. Like this isn't a story I'm telling because I'm proud of it. Um, <laughs> yes, but it's like an example. It's an example of like uh, how this doesn't work, right? How mm-hmm. you, the, the question that you had was like, how do you reach those people? It's not like that, right? Um, because like uh, one of the most isolating things that we have is the language we use. Um, and so much of our language, I think, is coded in ways that we don't realize. Um, and um, even when you're talking with people with whom you assume some, like, level of agreement, um, you know, in workshops and things, one of the most interesting things that they do is, like, to take words that everyone's using and figure out what everyone thinks they mean. And, like, invariably, even in a group that maybe self-identifies as being sort of alike, people have, like, vastly different ideas about what these different words mean. And that's, like, a real barrier to communicating. So I find, yes. like... That's, a great, that's exactly what the podcast yeah. is about. You can't understand. Yeah. If someone says yeah. five words, you don't, you don't know anything what they really mean. Like if, you could ask them a yeah, question and say yes, so, no, it doesn't yeah. matter. Yes, and I'm so lazy because it's very easy for me to just say I want to dismantle capitalism and white supremacy and, and patriarchy um, and just say that, you know, and, and I don't have to explain what that means or, uh, you know. Exactly. I can't, that's why I wanted lazy. to go. That's it's right. very lazy. Yeah, yeah. Yes, but, uh, but I like it because that is what I want to do. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, and that's the conclusion that I've come to. And yes. You know, been lots of books and reading and writing and all of uh-huh. that stuff. So, but it's lazy. And so I find, like, the, the places where I've had, like, actually useful conversations are where I ask questions instead of, instead of trying to convince someone that I'm right, instead of trying to teach someone history, instead of trying to, um, you know, like open someone's eyes with tales of the Finnish education system. <laughs> because ultimately, like, the issue isn't uh, anything to do with, like, um, like facts. There's nothing to do with whatever you think facts are. Uh, it has to do with um, your beliefs about yourself and other people. It has to do with um, with things that you can discuss um, using like zero buzzwords. Um, and so when you start asking people questions about like uh, like what they think about like their own place in the world or like their own value as a person or like what people deserve. Um, like I get really different answers. So like, you know, ultimately when I'm talking to someone, usually the question that we get down to is like, do people deserve to be punished for being poor? Right. Because that's like often the place that we get to. And like most people, I haven't met anyone who says yes. (laughs) Um, I think that the closest I got to that was my friend on the Hill who was like, well, in order for me to be rich, people have to be poor. But I think even she would say like, people shouldn't necessarily just be punished for being poor, right? Like, should should children be punished for being born poor? Like, I don't think anyone should have. But, like, it's about, like, finding a place where, like, you get down to, like, brass tacks. You get down to, like, what people are really saying or what you think they're really saying. And, like, you can only get there by asking questions. Um, and ultimately, like, that's the question I want answered, like, when I talk to someone like John Covington or Darnell Early or, you know, Rahm Emanuel or Mike Pence, yikes. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it's scary imagining a conversation with him. Like, the ultimate question is, like, 
about whether or not you think that other people are as human as you are, I think. And, like, you know, obviously I wouldn't ask it that way. Right. But, like, I think, like, asking questions is really powerful. Like, I, um, I got my master's in urban pedagogy, which I have to be honest is what does that even mean? That seems like racist nonsense. <laughs> um, but, um, but I got my master's from uh, from the University of Michigan. And one of the classes that we had to take uh, was uh, initially it seemed like really nonsensical to me. It was about like, um, gosh, I don't even remember the, the language anymore, but it was about like coaching people essentially to be better teachers. And I was like, well, I'm just trying to be a better teacher, so I don't really understand why this is useful. But it was incredibly useful. <laughs> and there are all these different maps that um, you go through when you're talking to someone and you're trying to like coach them through um, through like a scenario or a problem that they're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. And it's just asking questions. There's no, there's zero, you know, I mean, that, that is what teaching is, is asking questions. But... There's no like, um, there's no place where you need to put in any input at all. Like you don't even need to let your opinion be known. But just by the questions that you ask, you actually direct the conversation. Um, and I, maybe you know more about this than me actually, but there was, I think it was on NPR, but there was, um, and now I think maybe the validity of this study has been questioned, but there were people who went around and they talked to conservatives and Democrats um, about like hot button, button issues like abortion and education and things like that. Um, and just by asking questions, they were able to get them to like shift to the other side, kind of. Yes. I've, Do I've, you know what I'm talking about? I can't remember whether I heard that exact story because I remember someone else referencing it. And I remember I've, I've read about the dangers of how you're interacting and how, how questions are framed. Cause I, yes. I, that is my enemy, right? Um, uh, I think you can influence people. This podcast is all about all the stuff you said. I've talked to a lot of people of different political persuasions, and they have all kind of connected on in a way. And this, this, it's like, oh, we're using language differently. Oh, but I, I want to say something because this feels really intuitive to me. Um, and, and when I do the podcast, it's not that I'm asking questions; it's that I'm, I'm, I'm letting the person in is what I'm trying to do, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And then my questions, like, like when you turned my whole interview plan upside down i've done a few of these now and no one has turned it completely upside down like i don't know your age (laughs) i'm sorry i'm 32 32 all right i can now the 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 listener would know that you're 32 but um (laughs) uh, usually like i start with like real basics we build your life and then we kind of look you know then part of what i'm doing is like look for themes i'm taking it all in but everything i'm saying is directly related to what you're saying, right? It's like, mm. and then the other part of it is you care about the other person. And like, you're not trying to get them. Even if they disagree, all you're trying to do is find clarity in what they're saying. And like, and like mm. you just keep repeating, like, what what don't I understand? Okay, but here's my question for you, though. Like, Uh-oh. So, well, <laughs> no, but I mean, so when you're, and this is something that I don't have an answer to, which is why I'm asking. Yeah, definitely. But, but like I feel like so um, I I actually have four jobs um, yes. and w- one of my Usually jobs I would have is known to, that by now. That's okay. <laughs> one of my jobs is I work at a women's clinic in Detroit, um, and it's an abortion clinic. They do other things, but for the purposes of this conversation, we can just call it an abortion clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I started working there because uh, for a while I was volunteering as a clinic escort. 
Um, do you know what a clinic escort is? They get shouted down when you bring the women. Bring yeah, them. yeah. So just like the the sort of recent uh, shifts in our um, political <laughs> landscape mm-hmm. have emboldened a lot of um, people who maybe previously were felt more marginalized and now feel like they um, can tap into like a larger base of people who agree with them. And so um, one um, result of that is that um, anti-choice protesters have become much, much more aggressive. Um, and uh, there are only two abortion clinics in Detroit, um, and they're both in like pretty densely populated neighborhoods um, that are... Um, predominantly black neighborhoods, um, and when I say densely populated in Detroit, that's um, significant because so much of the city um, has been depopulated. So I think like one in three buildings in the city of Detroit mm-hmm. is abandoned. Yeah. So there there aren't that many um, areas that are that are densely populated. So anyway, um, and so most of the people who access the clinics. I mean, some people travel from very far away because of, like, anti-choice legislation and things like that that have created a lot of barriers to people accessing their health care. Yeah. But um, most of the people who use the clinics are, are from nearby. They're from Detroit, and they're mostly black women. And most of the people who are protesting and even occupying clinics are older white men who do not live in Detroit. Um, a lot of them live in Ann Arbor, which is a city sort of similar to Ithaca in a lot of respects. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are abortion clinics in Ann Arbor, but they are specifically traveling to Detroit uh, to protest. Um, you know, they're not putting up these, like, signs that have, like, dismembered babies on them in front of their own houses in Ann Arbor, you know, because their neighbors would think they were insane. Um, but they feel comfortable traveling to someone else's neighborhood and, like, carrying these signs around and ruining someone's Saturday morning and um, specific, like, specifically telling black and brown women what they can and can't do with their bodies. Um, and it's this really interesting and infuriating dynamic. And so when I first started escorting, um, I assumed that um, that the protesters were there because they really and truly believed that life begins at conception and that what was happening was like a, a terrible detriment um, to like our collective morality. And mm-hmm. I thought they were motivated by like um, like some something sincere and good if like sort of misguided. You know, I would I would always yeah. encourage them to go to Flint and fight for the children who are alive and being poisoned by their government. Um, and I also invited them to a lot of like Black Lives Matter actions to which, uh, as far as I know, no one has ever actually <laughs> responded that they would go. But um, so that was my impression. And um, we, we realized as we were like organizing uh, the escorts in Michigan that um, it's actually not very useful to engage um, because that's part of the reason why protesters show up is they, they want to proselytize also to mm-hmm. the escorts. And mm-hmm. um, that's like an important, they feel like they're doing something useful, even if they don't, um, you know, block anyone from accessing their healthcare, they, um, they can at least like, you know, feel like they're, they're speaking the gospel or I, I'm, I'm not expressing this the way that they might. I don't know how they would say it, but they, they feel like they're doing something useful by talking to you. And so um, now we like encourage people to like wear headphones or, um, you know, not engage at all because it, it encourages them and we don't want to encourage them. And in a perfect world, we wouldn't be there and neither would they be. And people would just be able to like, you know, 
make their own decisions about their own body and like access whatever they need to access and, and not be harassed for it. Um, but what I realized after <laughs> this was hard one, this uh, realization that we shouldn't engage. Um, so for several months we did engage. And what I realized after talking to these uh, men um, was that I was actually incorrect and that um, and this is just a small sample, and, and I, I believe that there are people who are like what I described earlier, um, like a, a more positive version of someone who doesn't believe in a woman's body autonomy. But if such a thing can be imagined, but um, they, they weren't motivated by those feelings. They appeared to be motivated by the intense satisfaction they received from feeling superior to the people that they were watching walk into the clinic. Like they really believed that they knew better than, you know, these patients what they should and shouldn't do with their body. And they really like, they really seemed to get like intense enjoyment from like positioning themselves as like morally superior. And it's like, it was really horrifying to have this realization. And, you know, uh, I could also be wrong, um, but that was kind of like the culmination of, of all of these conversations that I was having with these people where it was like, oh, like, oh, you're not, you're not here because you're like, you feel called to be here to like do something positive. You're literally here because it makes you feel good to feel better than other people. <laughs> that was like really depressing to me to come to that realization what made you come to that realization? What what's what did you see? What what experiences? Well, there were there were a lot of conversations, like um, just the way that um, like uh, there was one man that I was talking to, and he was talking about how like he had adopted. This was horrifying to me, but he was talking about how he had adopted a bunch of children, and that they were all older, and so they were already kind of ruined. And that there were lots of people who wanted to, yeah, I mean, imagine hearing someone say this. And that he, um, you know, there were lots of people who wanted to adopt babies because they hadn't been ruined yet. And, like, these women who were, you know, making this, like, pla- like family planning decision to not have a baby were, like, uh, were, you know, depriving these people of, like, babies so that they would have to adopt like these older ruined children, so of like this belief that anyone can be ruined at any point, but certainly that like children are somehow ruined, uh, just like was really upsetting to me, <laughs> and um, just like really disgusting, quite honestly. And also to think that this person had actually adopted children and he felt this way about them, it was like really very upsetting. Um, yeah. But uh, I guess that doesn't really speak to my earlier point, which was, like, the moral superiority piece. I think it was more just, like, and this goes back to the idea that, um, you know, there are certain things that people aren't willing to talk about. So, like, they're willing to have a conversation within certain parameters when where they know they can make, like, a specific point. But anything outside of that point, like my flat earther friend, um, is irrelevant or, you know, uh, is not not worthy of attention. So my question for you was, Uh. in having these conversations with people, and again, I could be wrong or it could just be this specific group of anti-choice protesters, but um, my impression is that, um, that there 
wrong. And I've had this experience too with um, friends friends that I have who are who are liberal, who um, you know want to like make capitalism nicer rather than like acknowledge that like there isn't really an iteration of capitalism that doesn't require like the direct exploitation of the majority of people on the planet and the earth itself. So like I feel like I have the same <laughs> I have the same experience with both of those people. One you would imagine is like much closer politically to me than the other, but like where I just I feel very strongly that they are wrong <laughs> and that um that their their position comes directly from a desire to preserve their own um like perceived privilege or real privilege or um to like not shake things up too much or um to continue to occupy a space where they feel morally superior to somebody else like it it is very much about like superiority, even from, like, people who are very liberal, like, the idea that, you know, nonviolence and, like, forgiveness is everything, and, like, you're so powerful if you can just, like, forgive and, like, really sanitizing, like, Martin Luther King in particular, but, like, lots of people, Um, and how, like, I just feel like it's, I feel like they're wrong, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I, I, feel like it's kind of like rejecting the idea that the answer is somewhere in the middle because I, I don't think that it is. I think that we live in a world where you can objectively observe it and see that there are like um, there are uh, like systems in place that maintain and intensify inequality and then that's measurable. Like you, you can <laughs> you can track it. You can demonstrate it with numbers and data and people want to use like data in all kinds of subtle ways. Um, but, mm-hmm. but I mean you really can show this and so like um, what do you do when you're talking to someone and you're having this great conversation um, and you're humanizing each other, but your participation <laughs> in the conversation requires you to abandon um, what you know is right or to, uh, like, tamp down your, your like... Um, I believe it requires me to abandon anything. And... Um, okay. uh, being, I wasn't accusing you of that. I just right, right, oh, no, no, no. how you have that no, conversation. I, yeah, yeah, no, I didn't, but I didn't take Without that Without telling way at all. someone that they're wrong. <laughs> I love the questions you ask, but my goal is not to convince. My goal, and sometimes I make a joke about trying to convince people, but I don't even joke too much because I don't want <laughs> people to defend themselves. I want them to mm. freely express themselves. So my goal is really established in my mind. So it's not important to me whether I agree with them. Right. Sometimes I sound like I think I know what I'm talking about, but I think I've got a very mm-hmm. a certain humility. Like my intuition says, like people are all crazy, including me. And I'm always mm. trying to like untangle <laughs> that mess is really interesting. In my own humble way, um, what I believe is uh, everyone's got something to offer and uh, they're all kind of a valued part of the approach. What I like doing is I like talking to people. And I feel it's addressing some of the same issues. And I, you have to, you know, be open to change yourself. And then um, you have to care about the other person. All those things that do take a lot of patience. Someone has to try to listen patiently. And you see, you know, as a teacher, you're doing this exactly. You're sitting there and watching a kid doing all their crazy mm-hmm. stuff. And you're not reacting mm-hmm. in, in anger. You're you're giving them, you know, love. And you're giving them what they need to to, to hopefully grow out of whatever they're doing. And in a way, I feel mm-hmm. like I'm sort of doing that, except the difference is 
um, I actually believe <laughs> that these that everyone's going to teach me something. I'm looking for all the secrets. Anyway, so um, so I, I was going to um sort of probe on this one point. Um, you know that when you wear a a hat that, or whatever that <laughs> abortion is normal or something, you know intellectually that's not really going to engage people. But it 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 it, it carries. You're you're partly you're kind of giving moral support to all the people that might need it when they see that they're seeing someone with courage saying it's okay like that so you're talking mm-hmm. to those people for the people that disagree in a way you're you're giving them notice like you don't own the world i'm here too or something is that is that what's happening yeah wow that's such a great way of saying it i feel much cooler now <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah but what I about mean, this like... yeah what about something that said like would you like to talk politely about pro-choice <laughs> <laughs> that would, would that, well, would that maybe that would? I mean, inc- so I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I mean that. That so that's that's the other thing is that like I think that um I have actually thought about wanting to have another button of similar size and font that also says that birth is normal because I think that there's like a lot of crazy stuff about. Well, I'm actually also a doula, right, you're a doula um, right. so I'm like, <laughs> I do, um, so I'm like a, a birth companion, and I think that like birth is extremely beautiful, and babies are way magical, and I feel equally strongly about both of these things, that like abortion is normal, and I think that like birth is normal, and I think that like, um, you know, the majority of people in the United States think that abortion should be legal, and um, we are... Uh, sort of convinced that it's more of like a 50 conversation because equal time is given to anti-choice people as it is to pro-choice people. This is like that belief that the answer is somewhere in the middle and how flawed it is. People are so often like swayed not by like, you know, cool, calm assessment of the facts or whatever, but by, you know, the passion that they see or the belief that like a lot of people feel this way. Um, And I think like, I um, am really busy (laughs) and there's a lot of things that I put my energy into and I sometimes don't have uh, the patience or honestly like the emotional energy to to invite people in in that way. Sometimes the best I can do is like, you know, express like support for one side and, uh, you know, exist in um, opposition to the other. Yeah. Because, like, to have those conversations, to have someone explain to you exactly why they think that you do not deserve to have bodily autonomy and they do yeah. is painful. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. To, to have someone um tell you that they know what is best for you without knowing anything about you is painful to have someone um like you know i'm also uh i'm not just like bragging on all my jobs but i'm also i'm a legal observer with a national lawyers guild and um in the last year i've been to three nazi rallies um as a legal observer and it is uh, like a like a really emotionally exhausting experience, and like it's also evidence to me that like 
there really are not that many Nazis. Like, there are many more Nazis than I am comfortable with, mm-hmm. um, and they are certainly emboldened right now, but there aren't, like, we go to these rallies and there'll be, like, 50 heavily armed, like, white supremacist militiamen, and then there'll be, like, a thousand beautiful Americans just, like, full of, like, love and rage and opposition to the idea that, like, white supremacy has any legitimacy legitimacy whatsoever and it's like so it's like horrifying that there's these people but then it's like so beautiful and affirming that there's the other people but then it's also like what a privileged position that I occupy that I can sit there and be like yay there's more good people than bad people um when you know I'm not the person that they want to like eradicate or remove from the country or yeah yeah you know, I, I, who I they don't mean... see as human it's very hard to think clearly <laughs> Right. Um, when I mean, it's very hard to think clearly. Like uh, when someone is, you know, positing like a, a standpoint that, that like threatens yourself or the people you love. Like it's it's very hard to think clearly. It's hard yeah, to think clearly when people are um, suggesting like false narratives that prop up systems that like directly. That was episode six, part two of my interview with Emma. I have one last part coming up. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to like you to meet more new people. Mm-hmm.